Conversations with Consequences, where we aim to change and improve the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We're also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Conversations with Consequences is the radio show of the Catholic Association. Again, at thecatholicassociation.org, you can read more about our work defending religious liberty and the church in the public square and in the media, wherever we can be helpful. You can sign up to our daily clips which will send to your inbox the important news of the day, short, uh, short, and that's an easy sign up on our website. Today we have a great show lined up for you as we try to do every week. Last weekend at Dodgers Stadium, you may have heard, although I'm surprised a lot of people have not heard because I spoke to, to people over the weekend who were who are, who are Catholics and, and Christians, but they were not aware of what's going on. In Dodgers Stadium, the corporation that runs the Dodgers decided to honor an anti-Catholic hate group called the, Citru- the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They're basically drag queens or transvestite men who dress up as nuns in a very aggressive and demeaning way. And then they do, they do ugly things that are very offensive to us Catholics. And they should be to all Christians or any anybody of any religious understanding or even anybody with with a decent mind. But first, we mark this month one year since the fall of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision, and we've asked our dear friend Catherine Jean Lopez of National Review to talk to us um, about this anniversary and about a beautiful piece piece that she wrote in the National Catholic Register about how to respond with love in the face of all the difficulties that have ensued since then. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you, Gracie. You wrote a piece for the National Catholic Register that came out on the 19th, June 19th, because our listeners are going to want to look it up. It's called, What Are Post-Roe World Needs to See Love? It's a very beautiful piece. It's long and reflective, Catherine, and, and you, make, you make some very important points that I think are very well taken because in this one year since Dobbs, uh, dis- uh, you know, told the end of Roe, it was such an exciting moment, but it's been a really hard year. I think a lot of people who are in the pro-life movement are, and are just happy pro-life warriors in their small way or big way, they found it difficult. Do you, does that, has that been your experience too? Yeah, and I, I remember um, the morning that it happened last year, it was the Feast of the Sacred Heart, and I was at the Given Institute in Philadelphia, this gathering for young Catholic women. And they're supposed to stay off their phones. So theoretically, they didn't know it happens. And so I announced it to them. And one of the first things I said to them, of course, you know, it was wonderful to be in a in a room with 200 women, if you count the mentors and the young women um, who applauded. And um, you know, that's, that, that's not what, what you would, the impression you got in the media, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. But, quick to say do not pop champagne corks um you know this actually isn't a time for celebration yes thanks be to god the supreme court undid this injustice um but there's so much work to do and that's 
some of what you've seen play play out over mm-hmm. the last year. But I do think, as as you intimated, uh, I think people pro life people are down. Um, I think uh, a lot of people thought you know this might be the end of abortion in America. No. <laughs> Um, now lives have been saved in states where there have been protections, um, for, for some of the unborn, a lot of the unborn, most of the unborn, um, but miles to go. And, you know, one of, one of the realities is that abortion is more hidden than ever. You know, when you have Walgreens and CVS, um, you know, um, dispensing abortion pills now, um, I, I'm pretty sure that most Americans didn't even know there was such a thing, you know, as abortion mm-hmm. by pill. And that's the most of the abortions in America today. And so I think one of the most important things for pro-lifers to do is not be overwhelmed, you know, um, increase your prayer. <laughs> um, but ask yourself some questions like, and these are questions I ask myself all the time. Do the young people in your life know that they can come to you when they find themselves in an unplanned pregnancy situation? Because I often fear that if you're known as a practicing Catholic or a pro-lifer or a Republican or, you know, any of these things, you're the last person (laughs) that someone could come to you. Um, because they know you have views and, uh, they fear that they would be judged and, you know, pro-life people should be the first people that, that young people know that they can go to because we should be inundating people with love, you know, even as we tell the truth about the dignity of human life. Yeah. So we, we don't want to be the people that others fear. Um, right. for, to, for being judgmental or for being scandalized, right? But, right. And I know that, that that happens, but I that's not my experience of pro-life people. And you point that out in your, in, your, in your pretty piece, that pro-life people are the ones who go to the pregnancy care centers uh, and, and, and show up and do the, and do the work, right? And, yeah. and also meet, uh, so often we meet people, and, and travel with them and, and accompany them in non-judgmental ways, but obviously with a lot of love and, and how can I help you and how can I be that person for you that 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 will hold your hand through through whatever happens, right? Um, but you're right. Many because of the way we're painted in the media, I think more than anything else, people who people might tend to think of us as judgmental. But again, that's not my experience of pro-lifers. And I'm sure it's not yeah. yours either. Yeah, no, um, it's definitely not the impression you get in, in the media. But I also think that we need to be extra careful. You know, it can, um, on social media, in our conversations with people, sometimes when I talk about, um, there's a story I tell about being outside of Planned Parenthood one day. Um, in New York City and encountering a 17-year-old black girl who had taken the first abortion pill. And um, another sidewalk counselor was talking to her, trying to get her to um, submit to the reversal, the abortion pill reversal. 
And this sidewalk counselor, I kind of was guilty of sidewalk counseling malpractice <laughs> because you're not supposed to interrupt when, when, when a sidewalk counselor is talking to somebody. But I felt so bad for this girl. The sidewalk counselor was saying, you're going to, you know, you're going to um, see your baby in the toilet and flush oh. your baby. Yeah. And so then I went up and I said, oh, you know, I'm kind of trying to be a little softer and hi, you know, what's your name? Um, and I, I wanted, I talked to her about the Sisters of Life who were, are not far away from that particular clinic. So I thought maybe, maybe we can get her there and have some cookies and tea and, you know, see what the situation is. And, but she couldn't do that. She was very interested. The, the point I, I went over was when she said, I'm, I don't even support abortion. And she, she just, she said, you're making me feel worse. And so anyway, long story short, she couldn't go to the sisters of life because she had to pick up her, her little brother. She said her mother was making her get the abortion. Her oh. boyfriend didn't know her boyfriend would love to be a dad, etc. She goes, she goes, she does um, connect with two sisters of life, but as they're making plans to meet with a doctor, uh, her mom takes the phone away. Oh. So um, fast forward. So, so she winds up going through with the abortion, but fast forward some months, she is at Planned Parenthood again. Um, she's pregnant again, um, but it's later um, in the pregnancy and she um, has to have a surgical abortion. And by the grace of God, whoever is talking to her, describing what's going to happen says, and then we stop the heartbeat. Well, that was the end of it. She left. <laughs> she was not going to be having anything to do with stopping a heartbeat. Well, sometimes when I tell that story to conservatives, they say, immediately well why couldn't she keep her legs together and this is what i mean like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know young people are so inundated with sex is what you do mm -hmm. on your phone on your you know, like mm -hmm. um you know i the rihanna song that she she sang while pregnant at the Super Bowl halftime show this year. Rude boy is all about using him before he uses you. That is the culture. And so like that concept is just like so foreign. And so we do. And I'm not saying that's every conservative. I'm not saying that's every, but I've heard it often enough that I know it is a problem. Catherine, and I've, I've talked about this on, on, on the show and I've written about it. One of the things that I do in my, as a side, as a side gig is I, I do a lot of uh, talk on, on with young people. I give them talks on, on chastity, on, on p even puberty thing, you know, anything that has to do. Um, they call me this, the, the sex lady uh, in the, in our parish and in the archdiocese. And I go around to schools and I talk to young people, sometimes in small groups, sometimes big groups. And one of the things that shocks me over and over again is even children who are in a, even young people who are in a Catholic environment, they mm. can't imagine dating or just being a young adult or a late teen without being sexually active because the idea doesn't exist in their heads. It's never been right. presented to them. They don't know anyone who's behaved in a chaste way until marriage. Uh, if they do know that person, that person hasn't shared that with them. And it's it's been that idea is just 
a ridiculous idea. It's it's like if I spoke to you about flying, um, you know, without wings. If I if or I can jump from the roof and fly, they say no. Of course you can't. That's just impossible, right? Or um, it, even simpler, like not drinking water. Exactly. Not having sex is like not drinking water. Exactly. You know? And and you know, and God knows this about about the people, the young people who are, who have grown up since Roe v. Wade. Because and I wanted to talk that over with you. One of the things that's depressing me about a year past after Dobbs and the end of Roe is that we had so many decades of legal abortion in which our minds marinated in this idea that sex is for pleasure because now it's without the consequence of pregnancy because because of contraception and then if you if the pregnancy fails you can always have an abortion through 40 weeks of pregnancy i mean really there's no way that in the united states for all those decades you would be saddled with a baby if that's not what you wanted right right and i don't mean mean that you would give birth and give it up for adoption which is a wonderful beautiful thing and, and painful for the mom of course but you could just destroy that life and and you were so there was always we were just creating this culture where pregnancy is an unthinkable thing that is only thinkable when it, when you choose it and when it's exactly the right time with the right person and you're going to choose that act, right? You're going to say, well, there's pregnancy, that's what I'm going to choose because I want a baby this year, this this kind of baby because you can even, people even abort because it's the wrong sex. And and then sex as a, as an act of pleasure that, that fulfills you in every way and makes you human. And, and without it, you're inhuman in some way. It's horrible to think of this, <laughs> that that we now, we go back, we say, okay, no, so there's no more row, and then we're going to sort of juggle all these things at, at the state level. But the culture is so sick. How right. do we, how many decades will it take, if ever, to go back to the idea that sex is for procreation and that it's, you have to, uh, uh, you have to approach it responsibly and within marriage so that the baby can be received. And, and yes, sometimes mistakes happen, but... Abortion is not a failsafe. It's it's the end of a life. Well, in the coming days, um, the Biden administration is having a abortion series of abortion events where they talk about how much women need abortion. And I think one of the things that we need to do is give a voice to so many women who have been hurt by abortion. And, and men, and men, right? And men, yes, and men. But I, I think even the concept of hearing from a woman is so foreign to people mm-hmm. um, about the pain that it's caused and the regret that it's caused. And, you know, something that you mentioned earlier, Gracie, you know, that idea that a young person has no idea that there are adults in their life who, you know, wait until marriage and have a view of sex that's more than instant gratification. Um, You know, obviously you have these conversations when appropriate, but the witness of joyful couples who are living chastely is really important. And even, even the word chastity right like everybody's <laughs> called to chastity but when you say that people think you're talking about celibacy that's mm-hmm. my you know my children hate that word because i for years i've been doing something called chastity day at the archdiocese of miami <laughs> and they, it's for eighth graders it's a fabulous program they call it chastity day i think last year they wait they finally changed the name but for years my children had to go to it as they were in in, in their eighth grade parochial schools and and private and catholic schools but they hated the name because it made them so embarrassed that their mom was talking about chastity <laughs> in front of the entire 
<laughs> their entire school population at their schools. And you're right, the word chastity is completely misunderstood. And it just means living sex responsibly and, and in charity and with love and, and, it, and, it, and knowing that it creates children. And, and, the thing that children, and the things that children need are a married mother and father. <laughs> Which is not a given these days. I mean, on Father's Day, there were a number of profiles of gay men in gay marriages who had multiple children by different surrogates. And it, it, it just, it was a reminder of how <laughs> how far we've come. And I mean, one thing that I think is important to appreciate rather than get overwhelmed and depressed by all of this is that Paul VI was right in Humanae Vitae. Yes, exactly. And prophetic. And if we go back, you know, I, I think it gives us an appreciation for the, the church, obviously, <laughs> has some credibility problems in the world today um, for, for some good reasons and for, for some not, but the truth is in the church, you know, um, and to have some confidence about that and um, to trust that through our witnesses of virtue in small and big ways, um, I, I do think that's where the renewal happens. Um, I'm on the board of a group, a ministry called witness to love and they do marriage mentoring. And it's this really cool a- approach where like, if you're in a parish and you're um, getting ready to get married, instead of going through the typical pre cana afternoon or whatever box checking um, in some diocese, it's, it's not very impressive. You um, find a couple in your parish who like you want what they have And so you kind of approach them and they're usually surprised, shocked, probably. You know, I like, I like that it's coming from the younger, the younger couple. They approach the older couple. I think that's very nice. Exactly. And so both couples benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And there's a training involved and whatnot. But, but the point is that, you know, there is a witness there on both couples parts and, and there's an accompaniment, um, you know, which gets back to what we were talking about earlier about you know, pro-life movement at its best is accompanying. Um, and that, that's something that we need to show more. I, I was speaking to, um, Columbia university students, like the Columbia pro-life club a couple of weeks ago. And I asked, so like, what's the closest pregnancy care center? And nobody knew in the pro-life club. And I think that's a typical, um, a typical thing. Um, so just doing simple things like making sure you're supporting your local crisis pregnancy center or that you even know what it is, where it is. And, you know, and, the, and what it offers and, right. and how to direct someone there. We should all have that phone number on speed dial, right? We, there's no speed dials anymore. I'm talking about there's our no favorites. Yeah, and our favorites. <laughs> But we should have that. We should have that information. You know what's nice well, too? Little I've, brochures and things. Little brochures. Too. We you I know what's really what what's really helpful if you make a little card out of you know with your own resources exactly. and then you give it to the you put it in the confessionals with the priest's permission, of course. Um, at your parish and say, Father, could I, you know, could I could we have these little cards in the confessional in case I try to make sure that the parishes I frequent have post abortion healing brochures from the Sisters of Life. I try to keep those kind of things in my purse you just in case um you never know um just yeah there's there's information and an accompaniment out there and we don't know how to direct them we we don't pay attention and have that information on us 
And as you say, we, we should be volunteering uh, at the centers and, and, and being present and looking out for that, for that girl in our parish who looks troubled. Um, you know, God brings us people to our path. He puts people in our path that we can help, but we have to be attentive. And every day, most of us are encountering post-abortive women. Um, I'm sure you have post-abortive women um, listening and, right now. And yeah, then they're in our families. Well. They're in the pews. Right, they're right. at the grocery store. They're the mothers of the children in our classes. They're everywhere. So to, to know that, to have that in your heart and mind. And it, it should um, direct the way we talk about these issues, too. Um, you know, whenever we talk about abortion, about in politics or the news, um, bear in mind that somebody who's listening to us may have had an abortion, may be pondering an abortion, um, and, and make sure, you know, you're, you're saying what you're saying with love um, about the truth, obviously. Um, I think, I think, I know that many, many people who work in the in the in the pro-life movement at the at the pregnancy care center level especially who are engaged and and in project Rachel and things like that or Rachel's vineyard they are post-abortive they're right. they, they were so traumatized by their experience they're so persistently sad about it they've had so much trouble climbing out of that hole entrusting themselves to God's mercy which seems you know to a post-abortive person, woman or man, sometimes the idea that God could forgive that is incomprehensible because they, they can't find forgiveness for themselves inside their own hearts, right? So they don't realize that God's heart is so much bigger. I often think about the fact that Dorothy Day, who Archbishop Gomez once said, um, isn't a saint yet, but makes me want to be one. Um, oh, that's pretty. That's a beautiful line. <laughs> yeah. She, in her final years, still was writing about her abortion. Um, and she knew she had been forgiven. She had gone to confession after she had had her conversion. But it's it's something you don't forget because it's a human life, you know. And once you realize that, um, and even if you haven't come to the full realization of that, I mean, your body knows. Um, and and you, you know better than I all of the physiological changes that come with, with, um, you know, conceiving a child in, in your room and the, the changes that, you know, never, never can be fully undone. Um, I find one of the, one of my, in my own experience, I have found that many women and men realize the enormity of, of their abortion when they have their first, they receive their first mm -hmm. child into the world. And then right. they're able to hold the child and say, oh, this was the miracle I rejected. You know, this is right. the life that I'd never held because I said no, or I was coerced into it or talked into it, or my mom took my phone or whatever horrible right, situation right. that brought them there. But then their life comes crashing to a halt because the the enormity of it comes through. And, and all of us on the pro-life, everyone that I know on the pro-life side, even though we get caught up in the politics and, and the rhetoric, which can get heated, what we want is not just to save those lives because... Those those little lives are in God's hands, and and He He knows how to take care of them, right? The little lives that didn't they made it to, almost to the threshold and then were taken away. But all those mothers and fathers, the the grandmothers, the the friend who helped and now regrets it, the all those people that were hurt by abortion, we we ache for them. You know, their pain is our pain because it's 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 such a tragedy, and it removes people from 
the belief that the understanding that God can love them and to be to be removed from that is 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 just a desolation. And you mentioned how so many of the women on the front lines of post-abortion healing and and other pro-life work had abortions themselves. Likewise, some of the most ardent advocates of abortion do that because they themselves had abortions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can either lead to sadness or it can lead to a hardening. Because it's and a kind so- of defiance, right? Because you say, right. if, I, if I one step a foot down the road to say that I was it was wrong, then I'm going to... I'm going to crash into a ball of guilt, right? So right. how? So right. they do everything they can to to um, to to deny the that the reality because then guilt is on the other side of that, and guilt is a horrible feeling. Which is another reason that we need to have compassion when we're debating people, discussing this issue because that's that's what's underneath, and it's it's right just below the surface. Sometimes it's on the sleeve. It's um it, it's it's very obvious in many cases why why people are shouting their abortions. You know, I've told this um, story before, Catherine. But my sister, when she was in college, had a her roommate. My sister was very. We were very pro life, but you know, but in a very reflexive sort of ignorant way <laughs> this, this was a long time ago and her college roommate twice had my sister drive her to get an abortion mm. and it, how many years is that ago 35 years ago for 35 years my sister's been agonizing over this so mm. even people like that young people who were ancillary right or just caught up in something suffer <laughs> trying to be a good friend right trying to be a good friend and only realizing later that they had participated in in two terrible things, two terrible acts. Yeah, there's so many so many layers to the pain. Yeah, and so so many ways that that people suffer from abortion. It's not just the death of the child. So, Catherine Jean Lopez, thank you so much uh, for uh, for joining us. And let me repeat: your beautiful piece is in the National Catholic Register called "What Our Post Roe World Needs Is to See Love." So pretty. I really recommend it to all our listeners. And it's full of wonderful ideas about how to be that loving person on the front lines. Be Um, creative about love. I think that's the most important thing. Yes, be creative. Be attentive and creative and thoughtful and, 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 you know, and hold on tight. This too shall pass and and we will be be the the witnesses that God wants us to be. Like you, Catherine. (laughs) Like you, Gracie. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your radio hostess. Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you. Last weekend, we were treated to a strange sight. The Dodgers uh, honored the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence an hour before their big baseball game, which, by the way, they lost in a, in a complete rout. But right before the show, I mean, right before the game, an hour before, they honored this terrible anti-Catholic hate group of transvestites who make 
terrible fun of the cross and all the things we hold most dear in indecent ways and thing in ways that are very sacrilegious they honored them as part of their pride event and they did it in a in a hangdog sort of way they did it when nobody was watching an hour before the the game outside there were thousands of people thousands of christians and catholics and and allies praying quietly protesting this so before the before this all happened the week before you wrote a really great piece in real clear religion called perpetual indulgence versus religious conviction and what i really liked about your piece is that you you framed the issue in a religious liberty setting. So I thought you could tell us how this uh, decision by the Dodgers can can be best understood as a religious freedom issue. Sure. It's it's one of those classic, on the one hand and the other hand. Uh, On the one hand, it's not a matter of religious liberty in so much as it's not a matter of state coercion. So the, the, the state wasn't forcing the Dodgers to do this. The state wasn't taking action against Catholics or others. But on the other hand, it is a matter of religious liberty in so much as the, the vision of the founders was always that religion be in the public square. That in fact, religion is fundamental, is essential to a virtuous society, that religious people and their organizations are at the heart of American life, uh, both publicly and privately. And here is a situation in which you had a, a professional sports team, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers, that made this decision to to honor and give its uh, Community Heroes Award uh, to the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, as they call themselves, and thereby participate in a much broader effort that has been building and building and building over the years to, to cast aside religious people um, and organizations that affirm what is true about what it means to be human, about life and marriage and family and human sexuality and uh, the beautiful uh, complementarity between males and females. And even though the Dodgers have been made very aware of the history of, of this group, of its history of um, just the most disrespectful and insidious and grotesque um, activities that they had perpetuated over the years, they decided to go ahead and honor them. So really making it harder and harder for uh, Catholics and, and other uh, religious people to, uh, to fully exercise their faith in the public square. So it's a religious liberty issue because it makes the public square a, a, a place where Catholics don't feel welcome. And in, and in a way that, that the United States has had over its long history, this uh, a beautiful pluralistic ideal, right? So the religious liberty issue is that the United States is a pluralistic place where people can bring their religious ideas and values and fervor into the public square and be respected there, regardless of what their religion might be. That's a, I really like the way you phrase that because I think most people do stop at the at the first at that first way of thinking about it that you mentioned first, which is that, well, nobody's coercing the Dodgers into into having an anti-Catholic hate group on their field and honoring them. But still, you're, you're creating an ugly environment for religion in general in a land that is beautifully pluralistic, as is the United States. And, and I mean, and there's always a distinction between different kinds of coercion or different kinds of pressure. So, you know, there's no evidence that any government entity, um, any government official was you know, trying to compel the Dodgers to uh, award 
uh, to give this award, to give this honor to this group. But what is certainly true is that those people who are in organizations that are promoting the the ideology that underpins groups like like the Sisters of, of Perpetual Indulgence, they are putting pressure on um, professional sports teams and media outlets and um, you know entertainment companies and schools, all mm-hmm. starting at preschool all the way up through college and university too, to promote and affirm these claims, these false claims about, about, uh, about being human, and at the same time to punish, to mock, to belittle uh, those people who affirm you know, really classic understandings of, of what it means to be human. I guess uh, you can also think of coercion in the sense that they coerced all their fans and their tic- their season ticket holders, the players themselves, the managers, anybody who's in the stands and works at the LA Dodgers, and that's how they make their living. Those people were coerced into participating at, on some level, right? Depending on what their their participation is in with the LA Dodgers. That's exactly right. There's a knock-on effect. So you'll have outside groups that will put pressure on. Um, organizations like the Dodgers, the Dodgers then make a decision to uh, to hold, for example, a Pride Night, and then in the context of that, to to give an award to a group like this, and then you know you're you're taking you know you had already decided you know months and months and months ago to take your your children to the ballpark, and suddenly you know this is what you see in front of you, and as you noted, you're a player, and you're now in a position where you know you're being often asked across a range of sports to wear apparel uh, with some sort of, um, you know, sexual orientation and gender identity symbol on it, usually the the rainbow flag. If you wear it, um, in effect, you are affirming the claims of this ideology. And then if you don't, of course, you open yourself up to attack and and retribution. So that's exactly right. There's there's sort of a knock-on effect. There's pressure on the team. The team then puts fans and players in these positions that they just really never should be put in. And you talk about one player, Trevor Williams, who was very brave, a Catholic Catholic baseball player, and he was very brave and and came out against this, this event. And I think that's very brave, especially uh, for a young person. He's very young, relatively young, <laughs> and they've they've been living for a long time. Many many young people have entirely grown up in a in an ambiance where in an environment where you can't where this the idea of speaking out against whatever flies under the rainbow umbrella, the rainbow flag, they know is a very dangerous thing. They know this, and they know it in their bones. So, how does someone like Trevor Williams find the courage? to speak out so publicly against this. So Trevor is somebody that I've uh, gotten to know uh, over the past year. We met in a retreat last fall, and uh, what's always just really impressed me about him is his faith, uh, his commitment to God, um, his and, and his intelligence. All of that came shining through in his response to, to the Dodgers. Interesting reading his statement where he noted, uh, among other things, that the Dodgers seem to be violating their own code of conduct regarding uh, you know what fans can or, or cannot display or wear at games that is things that are evidently mocking of other groups and you know including religious groups it's it, it's a violation of the Dodgers code of conduct and so he noted that in his statement but i think ultimately for him it, it just came down to you know his 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 love of god and love of neighbor and um the, you know i think for trevor uh, god will not be mocked 
and uh, you know the, this group that the Dodgers were honoring, they exist to mock God and to mock people who give honor to God, particularly Catholics and, and other and other Christians. And I think also he wanted to uh, to be a witness um, and to encourage his fellow players to uh, to do likewise. Again, in a winsome, uh, charitable, uh, intelligent way, but one that was very very clear. I was very happy that Trevor Williams did this and that he's a Catholic because sometimes I fear I'm a Catholic myself. Sometimes I fear that Catholics don't shine compared to other people of religious conviction in their in their ability and their willingness to to stand up and say no this is offensive this doesn't belong in the public square i'm thinking of muslim players uh muslim parents uh that that have been very very forthright about saying no 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 this you know this this rainbow flag is is not not something that we can stand under or behind or wear on our wear on our clothes because it's proposing something that we know is is wrong in the sight of God. So, do you think um, Catholics? Do you feel the same way about Trevor William that it's Williams that it's good that he's a Catholic and he did this? I think so. I mean, I, you know, and I think a lot of this is rooted in the the experience of Catholics in America. Yes, um, yes, I know, agree. Large, large, largely, not exclusively, but largely immigrant um, at certain stages of our history and received uh, bad. Badly, um, in some cases, you know, certainly persecuted. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like Irish may not apply. We were all familiar with those those scenes. Um, obviously, even before there was a the United States, um, it was illegal to be a Catholic here, kind of because it was illegal to be Catholic in in Britain. And um, and I think over the years, particularly in the 20th century, uh, a number of Catholics, um, you know, sort of okay, we're tired of being seen as strange and odd, and so let's just be indistinguishable from everybody. Else. Else. Mm-hmm. And when you crave that kind of acceptance and um, being indistinguishable, well, then what you look at, what you say and, and, and think and do becomes indistinguishable from everybody else. Being accepted and like becomes more important than being faithful. And it leads, in some cases, to a reticence about witnessing in the public square. Now, now, how you do that and when you witness, I mean, all of these questions are matters of a prudential judgment. Sometimes somebody may choose to do something behind the scenes and be very active behind the scenes and not necessarily do it quite as publicly. But I think to some extent that that history of Catholics in the United States has led, and that desire for just complete assimilation rather than just integration, has led a lot of Catholics to just sort of hide and not be more forthright in, in defending in defending the faith in the public square. I have another question for you, Nathan, that I've asked many people, and I wonder what your take on this is. How is it that corporations like the, the corporation that runs the LA Dodgers, how do they come to these decisions that I think, you know, a pretty smart adolescent could have foreseen for, uh, that we're going to be pretty contentious and might set off a firestorm. How is it that these things are happening? Because we're seeing them everywhere, right? Of course, I don't have to mention the Bud Light and the Coles and who else, um, Target. How are they getting caught up in this in ways that are so um, damaging to their brand? I think to some extent it reflects what's happening internally in a lot of these companies, which then radiates outward that um, perhaps they see you know, the, the culture moving in a certain direction and want to be on the cutting edge of it. Uh, companies you know, historically have been seen as being kind of 
stodgy and obstructionist to, to social change, and maybe they see this as an opportunity to to be forward looking and leaning um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to culture. I think for some, I mean, in some cases, you may have staff or uh, uh, owners or others who actually you know believe um, some of these some of these ideological claims. Others fear to some extent, a fear of being attacked as being you know hateful or bigoted or, or something along those lines from not holding these kind of uh, these kind of events. So I think that's these are all factors. Um, I think what they're missing is that there's a cross section of Americans, and you hinted at this earlier. And it's it's not just Christians, whether they're Catholic or or other. Uh, it's Muslims as well. Uh, my own colleague, Ismail Royer, uh, has been very involved in working closely with parents in uh, a county in Maryland, Montgomery County, Maryland, who are pursuing legal action against county education officials who have made it impossible for parents to uh, opt out of this content in their schools that's highly sexual, that's um, but, you know, pushing children to read books at a very early age, I think starting as early as the age of five, talking about going from being a man to a woman or, or, or vice versa. And, um, you know, for a long time, parents could say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. We, we don't want our children seeing that and reading that. And then the county decided, nope, nope, you must. We're going to force your children to read it. And so, so they, they responded. So it's not just, it, there's a cross-section of people across religious traditions that are pushing back on it, which I think is a really exciting development in America. And I see these, these, these um, the boycotts that, that have tumbled <laughs> the sales of, of Target and, and Bud Light, for instance, and also the demonstration that took place in front of Dodger Stadium at the same time that the the horrible transvestites were inside <laughs> receiving their prize. And that, that demonstration was thousands of people on, on a Friday afternoon, I think it was a Friday, and who I'm sure had better places to be, but they were there. They, they, they made their appearance and they took the time. And I'm feeling very, um, I'm feeling more hopeful that Americans are ready to take the country back in a sense to a time where you could be at a game or at school <laughs> or uh, at the shops without having a certain sexual ideology enforced on you. That's right. And I mean, it's interesting. You think about the name of this, this group that the Dodgers were, were honoring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Indulgence in what? Indulgence in our worst uh, desires, indulgence in using other people for kind of sexual gratification, um, indulgence in uh, selfishness. Um, and these Americans, whether they're the ones who are, were praying or, or demonstrating or, or others, uh, are pointing to a different way of living, a way of, 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 of selflessness, of self-sacrifice, uh, of, of love of neighbor. Um, and that was one of the things that I highlighted in the piece is that, you know, I have the great privilege of having very close friends, very dear friends who are religious sisters who kind of exemplify this, uh, you know, really beautiful, luminous, uh, selfless way of, of living. And so, you know, whether it's these parents in, in Maryland or people who were, um, um, you know, really concerned about what the Dodgers were doing, they're pointing to a different way of living, a, a way of living that's quite, uh, it's quite a contrast from um, what groups like the Dodgers uh, are honoring, have been promoting for, for a number of decades now. Well, let's hope, Nathaniel, heard that the, that the wave keeps growing and that more and more people start uh, 
living that out in their daily lives and in the way they they, they go into the public square with their with their their values and ideals and they don't have to leave them at the door. So thank you for joining us and to our listeners please check out Nathaniel Hurd of the religious the Religious Freedom Institute. Uh, on Real Clear Religion, his piece, Perpetual Indulgence versus Religious Conviction. I think you'll really like it. Thank you, Nathaniel. Thanks so much. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will say to us something very consoling on the one hand and very disconcerting at the same time on the other, before teaching us how the two go together. Jesus first tells us, fear no one. It goes on to give us the reason not to be afraid, because our Father in heaven loves us more than all the sparrows in the world and knows us intimately down to the last strand of here. Fifteen times in the Gospel, in fact, Jesus tells us not to be afraid. Regularly gives us as the reason, because our Father in heaven will provide for us and protect us. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he tells us not to worry about what we will eat or drink or wear, things we really need, because that same Father who clothes the lilies of the field knows what we need and will take care of us. In this Sunday's Gospel, Jesus tells us that he doesn't even want us to fear suffering or physical death, because not even death can separate us from the Father's love. These words are even more important at a time in which so many are eaten alive by anxiety and security and fear due to problems in their personal or family life, their studies, their career, or because of the state of the world, various worrisome trends in culture, law, and politics, and a litany of other concerns. At the same time that Jesus tells us fear no one, he adds that there is one we should have fear of. Do not fear, he says, those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who is this who can destroy us in Gehenna? Saints and biblical scholars have answered this question two ways. The majority have said that it refers to God who created us, who will judge us, and who has the ability to send us to eternal self-alienation in hell for having chosen against him in this life. By this interpretation... Jesus is saying, fear God rather than men. Then it goes on in the gospel to help us to learn how to relate to God, not fundamentally out of a servile fear, but out of a filial love. Since this God whom we should fear is one who, Jesus says, protects sparrows, has numbered every follicle, and will embrace with love and gratitude everyone who acknowledges Jesus. The second minority interpretation is that the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell is the devil. Of course, the devil's not divine and certainly cannot destroy in the same way God would be able to destroy. But he can torment both body and soul forever. Even though I'm personally inclined toward the first interpretation, that Jesus is telling us not to be afraid even of those who threaten to murder us, but rather the focus on the God who loves us and in correspondence to the gift of fear of the Lord, seek never to displease or deny him in this world, but to acknowledge him before others, including when threatened. I want to spend our time on the minority interpretation because the devil is getting a lot of attention today. Many questions are, many Catholics are asking questions and some are indeed becoming anxious. Two movies have recently been released focusing on the devil. The Pope's Exorcist, 
which is really a shallow and disappointing horror movie starring actor Russell Crowe, supposedly based on the life of the former exorcist of Rome, Father Gabriele Amorth, and the critically acclaimed movie Nefarious, which focuses realistically on the demonic possession of a fictional death row inmate in his conversations with a social psychologist. Even if the major interpretation of the passage is about a reverential fear of God, Jesus throughout the gospel certainly wants to help us have a healthy awareness that the devil exists and seeks to kill us. That we should, therefore, as we proclaim in our baptismal promises, reject him, his evil works, and his empty promises. St. Peter, the feast of whose martyrdom we'll celebrate on Thursday, compares the devil to a type of wild beast. He says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling, prowling the world like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That someone he longs to consume is you and me. What then does a healthy fear of the evil one, which Jesus wants us to have, look like? It involves two elements. First, we need to know how the devil seeks to attack us. The devil has no power over us unless we give him that power. He can't harm our soul unless we become his accomplices and allow our souls to be killed through mortal slash deadly sin, which separates our souls from the source of life, who is God. The way the one Jesus calls the father of lies seeks to accomplish this assisted suicide is by getting us to succumb to one of the diabolical deceptions, just as the devil did with Adam and Eve in the garden. A healthy fear of the devil involves no paranoia, but a sane vigilance against the devil's lies and against all his temptations to induce us to sin. Second, once we know that and how the devil's out to get us, we have to know what the remedy is to defeat his attempt to conquer us. That remedy is a deep trust in God that expresses itself in saying yes to him in everything. The evil one got Adam and Eve to sin, first by getting them to distrust God and his promises, then to do what God had explicitly told them not to do. Therefore, the antidote to the devil's machinations is to accentuate the opposite of what the devil wants to achieve. If our best defense is a good offense, we need to trust in God and seek to do his will in everything. If we trust in God the Father enough to say yes to him and no to the devil, if we base our lives on the truth incarnate rather than on the father of lies, then we don't need to fear the devil any more than Jesus did. Jesus is the stronger man whom he tells in St. Luke's Gospel has attacked and overpowered the devil, taking away his armor and dividing his spoils. If we stick fully with that stronger man, if we love him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, then we have nothing to fear. That's why Jesus' statements in the Gospel this Sunday are a paradox and not a contradiction. It's only when we're not totally gods that we have to fear, as Jesus tells us, because the devil is constantly at the gate waiting for us to echo his no to God so that he might seduce us away from God in this world and in the next. The devil's global strategy with us is to have us oppose God's plans for us. This involves first opposing God's plans for us to become holy. The only way for us to share eternally in Jesus' victory is to become a saint, because only saints get to heaven. To keep us from heaven, the devil wants to keep us from becoming godlike. With some of us, he tries to accomplish this by convincing us that we don't really have to be holy. We just need to be good, to get a D plus, rather than an A plus on our imitation of Christ. With others, the devil tries to make us fear the consequences of sanctity, that if we strive for holiness, we'll lose our friends, jobs, freedom, personality, identity, perhaps even our life. That's all a crock. The second thing the devil opposes is our call to be ardent apostles, to bring others to holiness, to love our neighbor as Christ loves us. Loving others necessarily involves sharing the gospel with them. Jesus tells us this Sunday, when I, what I say to you in the dark, tell in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. 
The devil gets us not to act on this call to acknowledge Christ before others in two ways. He convinces us that he's not it, that it's not really our mission to announce the gospel, but rather priests or nuns or catechists or somebody or anyone else. His second subterfuge is to frighten us away from proclaiming the gospel by making us fear that if the fear that we don't know the faith well enough to pass it on, or by thinking that our friends and family will consider us hypocrites if we start to proclaim the gospel now or by getting us to fear that if we bring the gospel to the public square, we will suffer for it. This fear, of course, is justified. If we preach the gospel, we may suffer for it, as some before us have. But that's why Jesus tells us not to fear those who can only kill the body. He wants us not to fear those who seek to intimidate us in this way, including the devil, but rather to have the courage to recognize he is with us, and that the Father who loves us will deliver us from the evil one if only we ask for his help. To defeat the devil and grow encouraged to live as holy missionary disciples, the greatest help we have is the Holy Eucharist, which we receive Jesus, the conqueror of sin and death, the vanquisher of the devil, the strongest man of all. Jesus in the Eucharist is the greatest source of holiness and the greatest impetus to live and spread the faith. The devil therefore hates the Eucharist and tries to do whatever he can to keep us from Jesus. He tries first to keep us from Mass and Eucharistic adoration and to disbelieve in Jesus' real presence. And he has successfully persuaded five or six Catholics in the U.S. to prioritize something other than Jesus on Sunday. And seven of ten to think that the Eucharist is just a thing rather than the Son of God who defeated him. If the devil can't stop us from attending Mass and believing in the Eucharistic Lord, then he tries to get us to receive the Lord in a routine way or sinful state. The best way, therefore, to be equipped to withstand the devil's onslaught is to receive the Lord with ever greater frequency and fervor and respond to his work within us with ever greater zeal and fidelity. That's what the church in the U.S. is seeking to do during this three-year-plus Eucharistic revival, the parish phase of which we entered into two weeks ago. Every time we receive Jesus well in the Eucharist, we share in his victory over the devil and are strengthened with courage to carry that victory out to others. So as we get ready for Mass this Sunday, let us take to heart what Jesus tells us, be not afraid, and receive with love, gratitude, and faith the one who is definitively defeated the devil and has shown us the way to share in his victory forever. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 